I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You've been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do, all I ever do, is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And today, I've got a kind of weird one for you guys. Now, in previous episodes, I've talked about comics where Batman became a vampire in previous comic uh, previous episodes I've, I've talked about comics that are actually fairly well described as non-fiction you know you could say that the the big book report that I do with Chris Honeywell is all about comics that have well I can't say some basis in reality because some of them don't but there's a non-fiction quality to some of them but today is a day for just weird fucked up comics, I guess, because today I'm going to be talking about Archie meets the Punisher. I shall repeat that. Today I'm going to be talking about Archie meets the Punisher. You did not misunderstand me. Yes, there was in fact a crossover between, of all companies, Marvel Comics and Archie Comics. Somebody thought this was a good idea. And so, as a result of that, a comic like this, it's just weird enough to be interesting. And so I thought, well, I could I could do worse than read this comic. I mean, there's no friggin' way this'll be the worst comic that anybody has ever read. There's just no way, you know? Especially when you consider who the creative team is, right? So, in my mind, it seemed like victory was inevitable here. And sure enough, this comic is made of nothing but win. <laughs> win, 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 win. It is by winning. <sighs> Basically, 
to read off of the wiki page for just a minute. Archie Meets the Punisher features the unlikely meeting of Marvel's murderous vigilante, The Punisher, and Archie Comics' all-American teenager, Archie Andrews. The book was written by Batten Lash, with artwork by John Buscema, drawing The Punisher characters, and Stan Goldberg, drawing the Archie characters. And that's about as good a segue as anything I can think of into the synopsis for the story. The Punishers made a deal with the government to hunt down a, a notorious drug dealer named Red, who's hiding in Riverdale. The deal requires him to forego his normally lethal methods and apprehend the suspect instead of killing him, since the feds wish to interrogate Red about the drug trafficking on the East Coast. This is rather fortunate because Red looks almost exactly like Archie Andrews, save for a prominent set of buck teeth. However, this circumstance also unintentionally causes a lot of trouble for Archie, as various drug-dealing mobsters who wish to even the score with Red decide to do away with Red before he can endanger their business one way or another. While the Punisher initially falls for the same similarity, he quickly realizes his mistake and henceforth teams up with Archie to save his girlfriend Veronica, who gets kidnapped by Red. All parties remain completely in character throughout the issue, although Riverdale's inherent innocence compels the Punisher to allow his true qu query to live for once, and the comic ends with the joking suggestion that the next crossover is going to be between Wolverine and Jughead. So, what did I think? Well, like I say, this is, without a doubt, the very stupidest team-up between Marvel and Archie that anybody could have possibly imagined. I mean, had it been Spider-Man and Archie, had it been Ms. Marvel and Archie, basically any other character except for the Punisher, and this this entire concept of a team-up would, would be, it would just seem less insane somehow. But honestly, that's the thing that makes this work. This is one of the fucking funniest comics that I have ever read. And basically what it comes down to is the fact that Marvel Comics and Archie Comics both decided that they were going to keep all of their characters in character. Now, you can't have the Punisher running around blowing everybody to hell in a comic book that's going to be published by Archie, okay? There's just fucking, there's no way that's going to happen, right? But what you can do is give him a good excuse to not go in or to not go around blowing the shit out of everybody, right? And that's exactly what happens in the story. Basically, the Punisher has agreed with the feds to let Red live. And then it's just the innocence and optimism of a place like Riverdale, which really is a step away from from becoming Mayberry, basically affects Frank on just this weird personal emotional level to where he doesn't want to turn Riverdale into a bloodbath. So he wants to do it. He just doesn't want to do it here, not in Riverdale. Does that make sense? And so none of this really seems all that forced. Now, yeah, I mean, what are the odds that Red is going to look enough like Archie to fool this many people? Well, slim and none, but that's really the one major conceit that this story asks you to make. Everything else, I mean, it all really does follow from firmly established characters. And isn't that really what what we all want from comics when all is said and done? You know, we want these characters to be in character. And that fucking, that's exactly what happens here. And this ends up becoming, 
a lot more entertaining, a lot funnier. And honestly, you know, it, it's a lot more enjoyable than you would think a comic book called The Punisher Meets Archie could ever hope to be, you know? And like I say, nothing gets compromised here. These people are who they are and who they've always been. It's just now they're interacting with each other, you know? And there's even a there, there's even this one moment that I fucking I just love it, right? Basically, the Punisher is all but sticking his Uzi, the barrel of his Uzi, right up Archie's nose. And you can see that Archie's about to shit his pants. I and mean, honestly, who wouldn't? I mean, standing around in the dark like that and some maniac comes out of the shadows and sticks an Uzi up your nose. I mean, if you don't shit your pants, I'm, what, you got some kind of death wish or something like that? So, I don't know. Anyway, and and so, like I say, neither of these characters is is being is being compromised in any way. You know, they're just interacting with each other, and there's even a degree to which they're even being affected by one another, and and these just this unusual environment. You know, the circumstances of their meeting. But make no mistake about it, the Punisher is the Punisher throughout this entire story. There's even this moment where he beats the shit out of some Riverdale cops. Just because he has got, he's got to get a move on and he doesn't really have the time or let's face it, doesn't really have much of an inclination to tell them why he's really here, you know? And so, look, I don't, I will never agree with beating up cops, okay? I'm never going to tell you that's an okay thing to do, but I understand the Punisher's rationale for doing it, right? And so, all around, this is just, and it's also just the kind of fun innocent sort of thing that that Archie is doing right now and going to the 1950 style big sock hop you know and the problems that he's been having with Veronica and everything and it's I mean this is just this is the same Archie story that if you've ever read Archie comics you've read a story like this a thousand fucking times it's just the one variable here is that the Punisher drops in for a visit because he's he's uh he's chasing a bad guy Right, but otherwise, this is a pretty straightforward and pretty cookie cutter Archie story, you know. And I, I would say that kind of the reverse is true too. You've seen the Punisher leave town to track uh, to track down some thug, some murderer, some criminal, some fugitive, whatever, and he has to go to some other town in order to do it. You've read that story a thousand fucking times. What makes this thing work is the fact that it's a typical Archie story mixed with a typical Punisher story. And this thing is made of when, just from beginning to end. And again, I, I just keep coming back to this 1950s sock hop that they're going to, because there's this one moment where Archie is, he's flirting with Betty, and he's trying to, let's face it, be anywhere other than where he is. And in the background, you can see, you can see these, see some graphics on the wall that say, I like Ike, I love Lucy. You can see the names Elvis, Pat Boone, and a couple of others. And it's just, this is so quintessentially innocent Archie that for those pages, it's like you forget that you're reading a story where the Punisher is running around. He's updating his war journal. He's out there to kick some serious ass. And I don't know. This is just, I mean, look, Archie comics, they're basically this sort of idealized 1950s style Americana, you know, or at least they were anyway, way back when. And there was this, 
they've always been sort of isolated from what's going on in the real world. And very frankly, I don't know if this is going to offend anybody or not, but in recent years, they've actually started confronting real world issues. I don't think I should be too specific on that, but odds are you probably know what I'm talking about. And I just think that's so just wrong for what Archie comics are supposed to be. You know, I mean, they've pretty much made a cottage industry out of out of these sort of, I would almost want to call them, uh, in terms of tone, I'd almost want to compare it to sort of the Andy Griffith show, where nothing really terrible ever really happens, you know? And it's only been fairly recently that they've sort of strayed from that tone. But this story was published back in 1994, when Archie comics were still the sort of, you know, wholesome entertainment for kids that I think they should always be, you know? And what makes this story work is, is precisely the fact that the Punisher does not fit in with this story. He doesn't fit in in Riverdale, you know? And he's basically forced into a situation where he has to be something other than he naturally wants to be. A, because that's the condition of him being there. B, uh, because of the fact that this is... In a weird kind of way, he views Riverdale as what he personally lost when his family died. Now, I think it would be fair to say New York City was never Riverdale, but that's not the way the Punisher sees it. He views this as being his stake, or this is what his stake on the American dream would have turned into, but for his family dying. And so this is... I don't know. It's it, it's just it's amazing how much character can get wrung out of all of this. And the other thing is, the Punisher is not just he's not just here to to fuck up the plot and provide comedy relief and sort of contrast with Archie's world. I mean, yes, that is part of it, but he's in character the entire time, and he ends up winning the day by slamming somebody in the face, or not winning the day, but he does take down one of the bad guys by slamming a cake in his face, you know? When was the last time you saw the Punisher claim victory by slamming a cake in somebody's face? I don't think I've ever seen that, you know? And, but it all kind of comes to a head where right after, like the page, the page where he actually slams him in the face with a cake, he actually, he, he tells Archie, I'm here to see no harm comes to Riverdale. And if there's any better, any better summary of, of, of the Punisher's participation in this story, that would be it. You know, he's ultimately here to make sure that Riverdale doesn't become New York, or it's not affected by New York. It basically gets to continue being a hermetically sealed haven of normalcy, you know, of the one place in the world where, you know, the weird fucked up things that go on in society... It's like somehow they just don't take root in Riverdale, you know? And that, I find that to be a very believable, and I would say very powerful and compelling um, character motivation for the Punisher to have, you know? And the, the simple fact of the matter is that this comic book is so absurd that on, just on the face of it, you know, that there's almost no way, if you do it right, there's almost no way that this story can possibly get fucked up because of the fact that 
I don't know. The, the contrasting styles are precisely what would make it work. Now, I don't think you could repeat this. I Honestly, I don't think I care to see another team-up between these two characters ever again. But this is such an easy thing to get right, you know? Whereas, when you think about it, having the Punisher... Or not the Punisher, having Spider-Man show up in Riverdale, I'm at a loss to think of a way to tell that story in an entertaining way, whereas... The Punisher coming to Riverdale, there's all different kinds of ways you could tell that story and make it fucking hilarious, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is this is this is one of those things that a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters for a thousand years never would have never would have come up with. But the fact that it's here, I mean, like I say, it's it, it's hard to believe that this thing could possibly go wrong, you know, and you know, there are some comics that you read it and it's a comic book, you enjoyed it, you put it down, you forget about it. There are some comics, though, where you kind of want to see this get adapted into a movie or something. And I don't know about the rest of you, but if Marvel Studios were to ever release a a uh, Punisher meets Archie animated film, dude, I'd be there with friggin' bells on. Because there's, like I say, I mean, this thing is made of so fucking much wind that... There's no way it's going to turn out badly. This is, this, it's just a story. I, I, I fucking, lo- I, I love it. I can't get enough of it. I'd even go so far as to say this is one of my favorite Punisher stories of all time. I mean, I am not exaggerating. This is, this is very true to who the Punisher is. It's, it's very true to who Archie is. Neither character is giving up their individual identities as characters. But at the same time, they are affected by one another. And that, to me, is what makes this story work. The Punisher is affected by the wholesomeness and innocence of Riverdale. And he views it as being just another layer of his mission to make sure that Riverdale is not affected by Red. And when you come right down to it, that is one hell of a powerful motivation for the Punisher to have. And it's, at the same time, incredibly easy to believe in. Now... As far as the art's concerned, there are two artists on the book, and this is another one of those instances where having two pencilers creates a clash with the art. But the thing is, the clash is completely intentional in this story, because just as the Punisher stands out, and let's face it, it doesn't really fit in with Archie and everybody else from Riverdale, or for that matter, Riverdale itself, the art of the Punisher isn't meant to fit in either. And so, yes, they do clash and that's intentional. You know, the art by John Buscema, it's slightly modified. It's not quite as just over the tar, uh, over the top, just dark and gritty. Like you're usually, uh, like you usually associate with the Punisher. It's slightly modified, but it's still recognizably the Punisher, you know, and Stan Goldberg, I think, there's a there's an argument that maybe he had the easier job since his style didn't really have to change at all. John Buscema had to slightly modify his style so that the the contrast and the clash between the two art styles would be less severe because there are there are instances of plenty where you have two different pencilers drawing the same page and for that matter they're even drawing the same panel. You know, anytime Archie and the Punisher are in the same panel, Buscema drew the Punisher, Goldberg drew Archie. And number one, just from a, from a technical point of view, that's got to be a pain in the balls to have to do. But number two, even though there's an intentional 
clash of styles going on here, you still have to take care of keeping them stylistically the same. So even though the line styles are noticeably different from one another, the the I guess the tone of the art, they can't be too far away from each other, else it just looks weird, you know? And Buscema and Goldberg, my hat is off, they found a way to stay tonally consistent with each other. And honestly, I can't escape the suspicion that Tom Palmer, the inker, is actually maybe the primary catalyst for all that, for keeping both artists honest with each other and making sure that neither of them goes too far off the reservation, you know? Tom Palmer, or whoever the inker is, but Tom Palmer especially, would have been the logical backstop for all of that and to make sure that everything stays uh, consistent just in terms of tone and style. Well, less style, but you, you get the idea here. So uh, that that definitely worked. And as to the writing, I mean, the dialogue, it's, it's basically, it, like I say, it's every Punisher story you've ever read. It's every Archie story you've ever read. And nothing is being compromised by the Punisher being in an Archie story. You know, Archie is recognizably Archie, and so are... So are his uh, supporting characters. The Punisher is recognizably the Punisher, and so are his supporting characters. So on and so forth. And when you think about it, guys, that takes talent, you know, both in terms of being able to draw this stuff, but also in terms of being able to write this stuff and have it not come off completely ridiculous. Because let's face it, that is the more likely outcome, I think, in most cases, is that, you know, I think a less skilled writer or a less skilled penciler, or a less skilled inker, or shit, even a less skilled colorist. I mean, Barry Grossman did a great job with all of this. In the hands of lesser talent, this is the point, in the hands of lesser talent, this storyline really could have fallen to pieces. And it didn't. You know, Now, like I say, it works for one issue. I don't think you'd want to try your luck again on future team-ups between these two characters. I mean, it worked once. I don't know as you'd want to try it twice. But that having been said, this is... Guys, my hat is off. I mean, this is a, this is a team-up that anybody, just thinking about it logically, would assume this has got to be the suckiest suck to ever suck the suck. And instead, this is one of the most memorable Archie and Punisher stories that I've ever read. So... Kudos, kudos, and kudos again to everybody who was involved with the production of this comic book. Because, guys, this is, to me, this is what a, a, an intercompany crossover needs to do. It, it needs to be honest and true with all of the characters and all of the worlds that are being paired up. You know, one, of, one group or the other, one company or the other, one universe or the other, cannot suffer so that the other one can be depicted accurately they both need to be depicted accurately and that is exactly what we're seeing here in the punisher meets archie so just all around like i say kudos to everybody involved this was uh just a fun and funny comic and how often have you read a funny punisher comic but this one is how many times have you read an action-packed archie comic but this one is you know, it's everything that the Punisher is and should be. It's everything that Archie is and should be. But the individual natures of both companies and both styles are never mixed. Nothing is ever compromised and nothing is ever sullied, shall we say. The Punisher is not sullied.
for in for interacting with Archie and Riverdale. And Archie and Riverdale, the they are not sullied for interacting with the Punisher. I mean, it's just the fucking perfect balance, guys. It may sound stupid, I promise you. Give this comic book a chance. You're going to laugh your balls off, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So, anyway, just give it a shot. You got nothing to lose. So, anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me. I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to be right back with some feedback. Trick your friends, scare the shit out of your relatives, or keep for your own personal use after you shuffle off this mortal coil. Magnus used tombstones. Perfect for people with names such as John Smith, Billy Bob Cletus Sideburn, Jimmy Hoffa, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Joseph Stalin, and dozens more. Magnus used tombstones. The best used tombstones this side of the other side. Some assembly required. No warranty expressed or implied. Void where prohibited by law. Batteries not included. Some tombstones may be damaged from armed military conflict or nuclear testing. Not recommended for children under the age of 25. bit of feedback that I want to work my way through here because guys you need to understand hand on heart I really am trying my best to clear out all of the feedback and get caught up and and work through all of this and so today's little bit of feedback or at least the first part of feedback or maybe the only part of feedback it it just sort of depends how long it takes to work through this one I mean there's a shitload more to, to work my way through here but I may or may not only work my way through one of them. Hopefully that makes sense. So anyway, today's first little bit of feedback though, this comes in from John Wilson, John M. Wilson, a podcaster of, well, I would imagine he's probably known to all or at least most of you, especially if you've, if you've been listening to my show for any great length of time whatsoever. Odds are you've heard the name John M. Wilson at least once or twice, but 
more likely you've actually heard the man himself on my show as, as I've had him on for quite a lot of things, actually. Never as often as I would like, just because of the nature of his schedule and how that works out in relation to my own schedule and all of that. And so it's one of those things where it's not his fault and it's not my fault. It's just life shit that just seems to get in the way of everything. And so that's really the reason why he hasn't been on the show as often as I would have wanted. There's really no deeper meaning to it than that. It's just he's got a certain schedule, I've got a certain schedule, and sometimes it's hard to get to get the two of them synced up. So that's the bad news. Now, the good news is I'm going to be circling back to that before too long, but just I, I just want to set the table with it now. But anyway, as I say, this email comes from, as I say, uh, John M. Wilson. The subject line of this email is New 52 Timeline. And the date on which this email was sent was October the 29th, 2014. And before we get too far into this, and John, I'm not throwing shots at you or anything, so just, you know, don't don't take it that way if you're listening. But there's a limit to how relevant I think this really is uh, right now. At the time that John wrote this to me, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I honestly don't know what inspired John to write all of this to me, but... Uh, uh, I must have said something, but you know whatever, you know whatever happened or didn't happen. Obviously, you know we live in a post-rebirth world now, and so I'm not really sure how relevant anything to do with the new 52 really is. But just keep in mind, it's not like John is behind the times or anything. If anything, I'm actually the one that's behind the times because it took me so freaking long to get to this. But anyway, as I say. This was sent on October the 29th, 2014, and once again, subject line says New 52 Timeline. And my old friend John M. Wilson writes, Your Excellency and Holy Magnanimousness. Okay, before I get into this, a few things. I'm three months behind on your show. In my efforts to listen to everything I want to listen to, I've not managed to catch up on the shows that were once a part of the unified TTF feed. So, as I'm writing this, I've just listened to your Superman Sandman Saga episode, and since you record these things way the fuck in advance, I figure I'm responding to things uh, that you said when you were 12 that are only now making it on the air. <laughs> touche, sir, touche. All that to say, if somehow the points I'm about to make have already gone through your brain, then mea culpa. Second caveat is that I'm not trying to say you're wrong in a mean way. I'm going to argue with things that you uh, that you've said, but I'm hoping that what friendship we have can take it. At the end of the day, if I piss you off, just remember that one great blowjob I gave you at Finkel's Bar for random uncomfortable sexual remarks, and hopefully we're okay. And we are okay, John. Nothing to worry about there get back into John's email though he writes here we go the new 52 timeline is something you said you have a big problem with because a it's not a reboot and b because the five-year thing doesn't work the third reason you said you're not digging into current DC is that you don't like modern Superman but that's the most subjective of the three points and I can't make you like something however at the end I will make a couple of read uh, of reading comments a couple reading comments in the Superman arena, and you can do with them as you will. I'm going to put the email back on pause here and say, you know, John, maybe I should have re-listened to that Sandman episode that I did, that Sandman Saga episode that I did, 
uh, before diving into this email, but I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really remember exactly what was said. Now, the two things that especially stand out here, the whole it's not a reboot thing and the five-year thing, those things definitely sound like something that I would have said. And God knows there's, there's something about the new 52 Superman that never sat right with me either. So all of this, I'm going to be honest with you, man, all of this actually sounds very plausible. So um, I, while I can't be sure exactly what it was that I said, that inspired this email. All of this, it sounds like something that I would have said, and so it sounds to me like you've actually done a pretty good job of encapsulating what my comments actually were. Again, it's not like I've listened to, the, uh, to, to that episode lately, so, or really ever, so I can't really say for sure, you know, whether or not you did, but all of this, it's, it, it, it's, got, a, it, it's got a big ring of plausibility to it, I suppose. So anyway, to get back into uh, the email, though, what uh, John writes is, before I counter your your two specific points, I just want to talk about uh, current DC structure and timeline. When it was announced, it was described as a rollback and not a reboot. I think that was a mistake on DC's part because it definitely, or rather, because it is definitely very much a reboot. With two big exceptions that I'll address in a minute, the DC Universe, as it was before September of 2011, is absolutely gone and undone. But, I was at San Diego Comic-Con the year this was happening, and I heard every panel pertaining to the relaunch, so I heard all the marketing and promo talk they, uh, uh, they gave to try to explain their approach. They said they wanted to preserve the main points of the origins of the characters, and the main points of the characters' lives before the origins that have majorly shaped our understanding of the character. What are those major events, and why were they kept? Well, that was all decided in editorial and creative offices, and maybe we disagree with some of their reasoning, but that is why Superman still has a death and return in his history. That is why Barbara Gordon was still shot by the Joker and confined to a wheelchair for a good chunk of time. That's the justification for keeping the emotional spectrum in the Lantern mythos and Batman Incorporated in the Batman world. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know, at the risk of basically repeating something that I said before and which you're about to rebut, you know, John, that really does kind of bother me, you know? And the reason for that is because I, I view... I, I tend to view continuity, as you probably know, in very absolute, black and white type, uh, very binary types of t uh, terms, you know? It's on or it's off, it's right or it's wrong, you know? And the idea of uh, using this, not using that, picking this, rejecting that, it kind of bothers me in as much as, you know, I come from a generation of comic book collecting fandom that basically put a little bit of a premium on having a complete run of something, you know? And basically this mentality of everything that you need to know about a particular character starts right here in issue number whatever, and then you can just, you can pick up that issue, fill in the gaps in your collection, and you're gonna be more or less up to speed by the time you get up to the current day, right? And what DC seems to, seems to be wanting to do is, or at least what they seemed to want to do, 
with the new 52 is basically have their cake and eat it too. They, it seemed to me that what they wanted to do was have have the ability, I guess, not to recapitulate certain stories, and yet have the same, and, and yet at the same time have the latitude to say, but the story that takes place right after this really famous one that's a trade paperback on your shelf, the story that takes place after the famous trade paperback, oh, that we're just going to skip, you know? And I just say that's fucking bullshit, you know? Um, continuity, either you got it or you don't, you know? And the way that it was with the new 52, it didn't, a lot of things pertaining to the new 52 didn't really start with the new 52. Right, and a good example actually is Green Lantern. Right, Green Lantern as a title, you could fairly well argue, except for the change and the kind of minor change in Hal Jordan's costume, there really wasn't much about Hal Jordan that really changed with the the, the advent of the New 52. You know, and maybe it's just the fact that Jeff Johns happened to be writing Green Lantern at the time that. The new 52 relaunch took place, you know, maybe that had something to do with it. But nevertheless, you know, if you were just, if you were a new reader coming into uh, Green Lantern at the start of the new 52, you wouldn't have the first fucking idea what was going on. You would pretty much need to have gone all the way back to Green Lantern Rebirth. And arguably, you know what, maybe even longer than that. But for sure, Rebirth, in order to really get what the Green Lantern titles had been up to for all those years. And that really is the setup for anything and everything that happened in the New 52, right? And so, you know, it's not that I'm disputing your point. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're the guy that actually read the New 52. You collected these titles and I didn't. And so I really have no choice except to defer to you on this except on Green Lantern. I made a point of finishing out the Jeff Johns run on Green Lantern, which obviously is gonna take me into the first, I wanna say like year and a half or two years or something like that of the new 52. And, or may, you know what, hell, maybe even longer than that, but for sure, at a minimum, a year and a half to two years. So, you know, the new 52 was definitely firmly established by around then. And those stories just don't make any sense whatsoever those Green Lantern stories don't, unless you have the, I guess, the post-Jeff Johns, or I guess, I, not even post-Jeff Johns, the, the post-Rebirth stuff in mind as you read all of this stuff, and you can organize the, the canon and the continuity and the characters in that way, all right? So again, I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying you're probably right. You know, like I say, you're the one that read this stuff. You're the one that knows what he's talking about here. And so I have no choice except to defer to you, except on Green Lantern. And on that one single thing, and to be honest with you, John, I think that may have been where a great, uh, a great big part of my outrage uh, about the New 52 really did come from. I mean, I read a fair amount of Batman comics, uh, New 52 Batman comics, and the there's obviously a, a, a dense and rich history to this character and a lot of which I must say seemed to take into account things that occurred before the new 52 
Now, if what you're telling me is that those things were clarified upon and, dare I say, corrected as the new 52 progressed, then, again, I've got no choice except to believe you. I just want you to understand where I was coming from as the starting point with all of my remarks. Because I can tell you, for sure, I, I don't even know that year, or rather, I don't know that Zero Year had come out at the time that I was doing my Superman Sandman Saga episode. I'm pretty sure that Zero Year was still a long way off. My memory could be failing me. But I'm pretty sure that uh, Zero Year hadn't even been published yet. And I'm for damn sure, no matter, no matter, you know, even if my, my memory is uh, failing me on this, I am absolutely positive that even if Zero Year did exist, I'm absolutely positive that I had not read it at the time that I recorded that Sandman Saga episode. So again, everything that you're saying is probably right. I mean, you know, you have no reason to lie to me, and I and I know that. And so, but I just, again, I want you to understand, like, what my reference point was when I came to all of this. So anyway, hopefully that all makes sense. And all of that is to say, again, at the risk of repeating a bunch of bullshit that I said before that you've now debunked or at least rebutted, you know, when I started thinking about this, that, you know, Dick Grayson was Robin and then he became Nightwing. And then Jason Todd was Robin. He got killed and then he fucking somehow came back from the dead. Tim Drake was Robin and then he became something else. And then after that, Damian Wayne became Robin. Look, I can buy all of that in the context of a 10 year timeline. It doesn't completely work but it's good enough right it, it passes the squint test so fine i cannot and will not buy into that in the context you know all of these different robins and stuff that there were i cannot buy into that in the context of a five-year timeline and if what you're saying is that new 52 batman is its own thing and it's wrong of me to impose everything that I thought I knew about uh, Batman based upon the pre-Flashpoint continuity onto the the new 52 Batman. Look, dude, I got no, no choice except to take you at your word on that. I'm just saying, again, that's where I was coming from at that time. All right? So take from that whatever you think it's worth. So anyway, to get back into John's email, though, he writes... But beyond the major points of the origin and whatever key events were deemed worth preserving, every single member of the DCU has had his or her history changed, often very dramatically. So Superman was sent from Krypton and found by the Kents, grew up in Smallville with Pete and Lana, and moved to Metropolis as an adult. But so many of the details around how all that went down are very different now, and I use now kind of guys just with an asterisk beside it. We're talking about circa 2014 here, just so you guys know. But anyway, very different now, not least of which is that his parents died on his high school prom night rather than surviving to see him become Superman. Also, Bruce's parents were still killed and he went off to train for a few years and then came back to Gotham to begin a war against crime. But who the Waynes were, where and how Bruce trained, the nature of the man who killed his parents, and why he did it, and how Bruce's career got started, the hows and whys of it all, they're all different. And much of that was spelled out 
in the recent year-long zero-year storyline. There are other major differences. Barry Allen has never dated Iris except once or twice in passing, and Wonder Woman has never had a relationship with Steve Trevor, much to his chagrin. Dick, Jason, and Tim were all partners to Batman, but they all joined much later in their lives, mid to late adolescence instead of older childhood, and they all worked with Batman for relatively brief periods before Dick decided to work with others his age, Jason was not killed, and Tim went off to hunt down a group that was kidnapping and coercing teens, or teen heroes, to serve nefarious purposes. And just about every character you could name is significantly different. Uh, is significantly different now. I'm going to put John's email back on pause and say, you know what, John? All of that sounds absolutely plausible. Um, and just going strictly by the letter of what I remember reading in those New 52 comics for the brief period that I stuck around, everything that you said, I could see. Ex- I-, I could see extrapolating from those few comics that I read. So, you know, everything that you've said, you know, man, I got no problem with none at all. Here's the thing though. You know, I kind of fell in love with the idea of Bruce Wayne adopting a young Dick Grayson and then Dick becoming Robin. And I fell in love with the idea of Dick basically growing up and realizing that his path, not only is it not Bruce's path? It shouldn't be Bruce's path. You know, Dick has his own destiny that he's that he's reaching for. And whatever the future is going to bring for him, it's not to follow in Bruce's footsteps. At least, not necessarily. You know, and I fell in love with the idea of Jason Todd ultimately replacing Dick Grayson and then Jason just being this very unstable kid who couldn't really handle the the rigors of this job. He was just fundamentally unstable in his core. And that's what ultimately got him killed by the Joker somehow, you know? And I fell in love with the idea of Batman basically never really completely forgiving himself for what happened to Jason and the fact that he got killed and the way that that haunted Batman for a really long time. And, you know, I fell in love with the idea of Tim Drake basically barging his way into the Batcave and sort of forcing himself in as being Jason's replacement, forcing himself into being the new Robin, specifically because on some level, yeah, Tim Drake is the ultimate Batman and Robin fanboy, but especially <clears throat> especially Robin that I just fell in in love with that such that to me that's inseparable from what Batman's canon ought to be, you know? And all of these things, basically they came to, to sort of shape and define and refine sort of my headcanon of what Batman's history ought to be, you know? And I can appreciate the fact that there are that, that really there has to be room for, for different people and for different interpretations and for different ideas and for different concepts. And you know what? Maybe even different continuities. But, you know, John, it's just the older I get, the more I like things the way they were before, you know? And I'm too old 
to relearn everything I thought I knew about this universe. You know, I mean, I just, I don't have the time for that. I don't have the patience for that. I don't have the desire for that. And so this idea of all of that stuff being wholesale reinvented, or as it sounds like more like more in line with what you're saying here, tweaked, it just kind of bothers me, you know? And that really goes to the core of a lot of my problems with uh, DC after the final issue of Flashpoint, you know? So anyway, not attacking you, not saying you're wrong or anything like that. I'm just saying that's where I'm coming from, all right? So anyway, to get back into uh, John's email, uh, though, he writes, except in two camps, and I think this is where people key in when they say it's not a full reboot, because the powers that be elected to preserve Batman Incorporated and the emotional spectrum with the various lanterns, the very recent history of uh, Batman's family of characters and the Green Lanterns was preserved in large part. I want to emphasize the phrase very recent history because I'm not saying that everything from Emerald Dawn to War of the Lanterns was kept, but that recent events in the lives of the New 52 Batman and Green Lanterns bear a strong resemblance to many of the events of the last few years of pre-Flashpoint DC. Now, is this cherry-picking? Yeah, probably. And I can see how some people might have a problem with it, but I want to emphasize that the kept history makes a very tiny percentage of what is being established is new. And for the most part, you don't have to know about those events to enjoy the new comics. I came to DC in September 2011 with only a passing, I've only read, or rather I've only heard but not read, understanding of recent DC, and with very few exceptions, the comics have done what any book should do, which is fill me in on characters' backstories as needed. The fact that we've uh, come... The fact that we have come into the world of superheroes five years after they first banded together as the Justice League is no different to picking up any novel or, uh, where, or any novel where we meet characters in the middle of their lives and learn about their histories as it pertains to current events. I'm going to put this, this email uh, on pause and say, yeah, and you know what, John, I get that. But, you know, here's the thing, you know, um, if, if you read, uh, for example, uh, the book uh, Lonesome Dove, all right? Everything that you need to know about uh, uh, Call and McRae, it's all right there in Lonesome Dove. Now, yeah, uh, there were other stories related to uh, Call and, and uh, McRae that were published later on. Larry McMurtry revisited those characters, you know, and... In fact, at least one of those was a prequel, you know, uh, but here's the thing. In order to read and enjoy Lonesome Dove, all you needed to do was read and enjoy Lonesome Dove. That was it. You know, that was the first book in the series, at least as far as I know. And, and so things like Dead Man's Walk, yeah, it's interesting to know about stuff like that. You know, like where exactly did that whole rivalry with Blue Duck come from you know like what was what was the the beginning step with all of that well at least as i remember it because it's been almost 20 years but as i remember it dead man's walk went a long way towards clarifying on a lot of that you know and basically i mean i guess what i'm saying is yeah i understand your analogy and i'm not trying to pick it to pieces but at the end of the day lonesome dove as 
I guess as a saga, begins on the first page of Lonesome Dove, the book, and then it just goes right on through to other books. And I just can't quite... It's just, that's just manifestly not the case with the new 52. Even if the continuities were completely brand new from the ground up, which we know not to be the case, but even if their continuities were brand new from the ground up, you know, there's still the entire however many decades, like 70 years or something like that, of publishing history that some of these characters have had. You know, and I get... I guess what I ultimately wanted from the New 52 but did not get was something along the lines of the Ultimate uh, Marvel Universe where these characters have a beginning point, right? Ultimate Spider-Man begins basically with Ultimate Spider-Man number one. Ultimate Fantastic Four begins basically with Ultimate Fantastic Four number one. Ultimate X-Men, pretty much they begin on uh, page one of Ultimate X-Men number one, so on and so forth, right? And, you know, that's not exactly what we're getting with the, or rather what we got with the New 52. Even if the continuities were completely immaculate, they're still not starting on page one and then letting the story unfold. You know, and there's a very strong argument that even the post-crisis DC universe didn't do that either. But, you know, it's just the difference is, you know, Marvel basically showed us a way to introduce an entire new universe and do it in a way that's accessible and doesn't require jumping all over this fucking retarded five-year timeline and stuff. I, I still don't understand. Even if you tell me, John, that the five-year timeline works, look, again, it's not my business to disagree with you, Okay. I still question the necessity of it. Why not start us, uh, you know, on day one and then just fucking work from there? Why did we need to see in Action Comics, as you said, that rough, or, or what was it, the, you, the rough justice Superman, I think is what you called him? Why did we need to see a rough justice Superman in Action Comics and then a modern day Superman in, uh, well, adjectiveless Superman? Why didn't they just fucking start off on day one with the rough justice Superman in his uh, in his jeans and his work boots and uh, his uh, T-shirt and just build the universe out as they go along? You know, why did they instantly have to have everything up to speed? You know, it's just look, if you're telling me that it works, I have no choice but to believe you. I'm just saying I disagree. Even if you, even if I could convince myself that it works, I still disagree with their decisions and their methods, I guess is the point. So again, I'm not hammering you. I'm not insulting you or bad-mouthing or anything like that. I'm just saying this is where I'm coming from, all right? So anyway, hopefully you and I are still friends now because it seems like I've disagreed with you an awful lot here. So anyway, to get back into it, uh, John writes, uh, where did I drop off? Yeah, here it is. Uh, their histories as it pertains to current events. Which brings up the five-year timeline and how it does or doesn't work. Now, you know me. You know how analytical I am. 
I study the hell out of continuity tidbits, and all that stuff is really important to my appreciation of a story. So when I say what I'm about to say, I've thought it out and paid attention to the stories as they've been presented since Flashpoint, and that is... The five-year timeline works as well as any other comics continuity I've read, and better than some. Five years ago-ish, the heroes of the Justice League first banded together to fight against the invasion of Darkseid, who was at that time lashing out all across the multiverse. Each of those heroes was already established in a career to one degree or another, except Cyborg, whose origin played out during the actual events of that story. It seems that Superman and Batman, who each got his start the better part of a year earlier, may have been the first superheroes on the scene. The main place where I've seen the five-year timeline break down for people is when they try to assume too much about backstory. I approach the new continuity with the thought that nothing of note has happened in the histories of these characters until I hear about it in story. And if I hear about some event in passing, it may or may not be like a similar event in previous continuities. For example, Superman died and came back. Okay, but that doesn't mean that the story on my shelf about the death and return of Superman is still in continuity. On the contrary, enough's been said in story to establish that whatever events surrounded Superman's death and return, they were nothing like what From Crisis to Crisis just recently covered in their epic death-slash-return trilogy run of episodes. All I know is that at some point in his life, Superman died and came back. Here's another similar bit of don't-assume-too-much type of logic. Dick Grayson is currently Nightwing, and we all know that he was recently Batman for a short time working with Damien. Bruce was gone for a while, believed to be dead, and came back, but... That doesn't necessarily mean he was shot by Darkseid's Omega Beams at the culmination of, the, uh, of events in the R.I.P. and Final Crisis storylines. And if we need to know more about the hows and whys of Batman's not-death and Dick's turn at the cowl, we'll hear about it. Until then, I don't see the, how the details matter. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know what, and I get that, but, you know, here's the thing. DC had the opportunity to just, like I say, begin writing their own history from page one, right? Nobody demanded that they instantly have an up-to-speed, up-to-date, modern DC continuity, right? Nobody would have demanded that. You know, what they could have done is the same thing that Ultimate Marvel did, which is basically start small and then big, build bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And look, the thing is, you know, people can love Ultimate Marvel, you know, things like Ultimatum and all that. People can love that stuff or they can hate it. But at the end of the day, the Ultimate Universe had a beginning point and arguably a, an ending point as well, but that's really neither here nor there. The point is, you know, Marvel rolled the Ultimate Universe out as things, as it made sense to add titles or miniseries or one-shots, spin-offs, just fucking whatever. And they took their time. They were very deliberate about it. And you know what? People can, like I say, people can love Ultimate Marvel or they can hate Ultimate Marvel. But at the end of the day, Ultimate Marvel, number one, 
had a basically immaculate continuity. And number two, it was a continuity that fucking made sense. All right. For the most part. I mean, about as well as any kind of comics continuity ever really makes sense and ever really adds up. Fucking Ultimate Marvel did. You know, it was all of those things. And it did all of those things, by the way, in a, in a very accessible kind of manner. You know what I mean? And DC, look, nobody was demanding a reboot. But if DC wanted to do some kind of attention-grabbing stunt like this, they could have started from day one. And they chose not to. I know not why, you know? And I don't know. I mean, ultimately... I realize that DC is a business and they have to put out X number of comics per month in order to stay in business. And, you know, look, cry me a river, build a bridge and fucking get over it. All right. The way I look at it is this. If they're serious about universe building and doing it in a way that's logical and makes sense and is accessible to new readers and is fucking coherent, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do it. And, you know, not for nothing, I think the new 52... You know, I think you could argue that maybe that proves the point, you know? So anyway, again, John, it feels like I'm shit-talking you here, so just triple underline this part. None of this is meant to be shit-talking. None of this is meant to be an insult or anything like that, okay? So seriously, no offense is intended here, just so you understand. You know, just so you and I can be clear between one another. Anyway, to get back into John's email, though, he writes, One place where this breaks down for me is Damien. I understand that the writer of Batman and Robin recently addressed this issue, but little's been said to explain how Batman has a 10-year-old son in his charge. And a perfect uh, opportunity to explain this, Batman and Robin Zero from 2012 Zero Month, only muddied the waters further. But, as many people have guessed or understood, some sort of artificial age acceleration process was employed by Talia so that she could more quickly employ... uh, the Batman's son as part of her efforts to defeat her father. Also, the establishment of the new continuity had some hiccups early on. Teen Titans uh, history underwent some changes just after the 11th hour, and Lobdell had an idea for Tim Drake's costume, uh, costumed name that would have done better if it had shown up in his brain a year earlier. But then again... How many different versions of the Hawks and Marvel family has DC done over the years? Continuity is sometimes a fickle mistress. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, yeah, John, when it comes to that dude, you're absolutely right. You know, and so I do think it's important to give these comics companies, not necessarily give them a free pass, but maybe just give them a little bit of leeway. You know, I mean, I'm all for basically everything that I've said up to this point in terms of creating a, uh, a coherent narrative, a coherent universe, and a coherent continuity, and doing all of those things in an accessible way. But, you know, I mean, we do, as fans, we do kind of need to be prepared to let some things slide once in a while, you know? So, anyway, that much we definitely agree on. So, good deal, I guess. Anyway, getting back into the email. So, there you have it. I feel like I've rambled. I also feel like I didn't come across as mean as meanly you're wrong as i feared i would but if i did you have my apologies and i'm gonna put your email on pause and say dude no no need to apologize no offense was taken i basically what i took from 
you know, your entire email, but really just the tone of your email is that you're basically speaking your mind, you know, and you know, whatever. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. You know, it's not like, you know, you're calling names or anything like that. So no, we're good. I hope. Anyway. So anyway, uh, let's see now, where did I drop off? Oh yeah, here we go. And I'm sorry you're not enjoying current DC comics like you wish you were, but I do consider the new 52 relaunch a reboot almost entirely across the board. Recent Batman and Green Lantern histories are the biggest exceptions, but there's a lot more DCU out there besides Batman and Green Lantern, and a lot of Batman and Green Lantern history before 2004, despite what the current editorial sentiments may indicate, and it's all basically different now. I also think that the five-year timeline works. It's not 100% perfect, but neither was Marvel, nor any incarnation of DC continuity that I can think of. As for Superman, if Morrison's action comics didn't appeal, and you don't feel like giving it another go now that it's all done, that's fine. Although it's a story I've come to rather love since uh, giving it uh, the full podcast analysis treatment over at New 52 Adventures of Superman. I'm going to put your email on pause and say, you know, I will say this, that Brainiac storyline, uh, you know, with Metropolis being shrunk down and all that stuff, I really did actually enjoy that, you know, because I guess maybe that gave me like a false sense of security or something. What I guess I was expecting was that we were going to get a lot more universe building like that. And, you know, there may be one or two titles that were, that are taking place in the modern day, but for the most part, DC Comics was going to be basically building up to the modern day. Actually, hold on. Let me just get a sip off of my Coke here because my throat is drier and sandpaper. Hmm. I'm also going to uh, take a drag off of my... Uh, my e-cig here. All right, so where the hell even, where was I? Oh, yeah. So Grant Morrison. And I guess what I was expecting was that DC was going to basically gradually build up to the modern day. You know, maybe they have to they, they would have to have, you know, one or one or two or three titles that take place in the modern day. But for the most part, they were going to do a page one build out of the DC universe. And eventually the stuff that took place five years ago was eventually going to catch up with the stuff that's taking place in the modern day, and it, it would all come out in the wash, and obviously that's not what happened. But for the most part, I really did enjoy uh, the the Jeff, not Jeff Johns, I'm sorry, the uh, Grant Morrison run on Action Comics. And I, I think the reason for that is because, you know, as I get older, one of the things I kind of like on a conceptual level, if nothing else, is the idea of Clark, or Superman for that matter, learning how to be Superman, you know? And in a weird kind of way, that is that is what Grant Morrison was somewhat dealing with. You know, that was a very Action Comics number one-ish type of Superman that he was writing in some ways, especially in terms of power levels. 
And I really like that. You know, I like the idea of of not only Superman becoming Superman in terms of his powers, but he's also becoming Superman in terms of his persona, in terms of worldview, you know, his moral universe and things like that. And that this is this isn't revolution so much as evolution, you know? And I just kind of like that idea. I like that approach to things. And if if I have a lasting regret about the new 52, it's that we didn't get more of that in a weird kind of way, you know? It seemed, and I, and, and again, John, I could be wrong here because it's been years, years since I've read any of that stuff. But the way it goes in my memory is that Superman in action comics, he basically got that retarded little robo outfit, the armor, uh, somewhere near the middle or maybe the end of that storyline, I forget what, but he, that's that's when that happened, you know? And I just thought that was a real shame, you know? And there you go. So, <sighs> getting back into John's email, though, he writes, but more superman stories that I that I would recommend are Greg, uh, Greg Pak's run on Action Comics that goes back to issue uh, 25. Also, Superman Wonder Woman has been solid. Greg Pak's Superman, or rather Batman Superman, has had some interesting stories, but some odd art choices. The Superman title itself has been the most rocky, sadly. If you don't mind another paragraph, I'd like to just rant about that for a moment. George Perez did not have the greatest story idea for his introductory art, but he was doing some really intriguing things to the mythos, chiefly, uh, chiefly of which was that Lois Lane knew Superman's secret identity. But her knowledge was never explicitly stated, and so after he left the book, it was ignored. Don't misunderstand me. She definitely knew, because there are some story beats that make no sense unless she knows, but it was all done subtly and was later ignored, as I said. The Dan, uh, then Dan Jurgens came on the book, and he doesn't do a bad job, quote-unquote, but he also isn't great. His issues 7 to 12 were perfectly serviceable stories, but they did very little to leave any sort of major impact. Then Scott Liddell took over, and as leery of that as I felt, his first issues frankly blew me away. Superman Zero and 13 are absolutely fabulous Superman comics. Sadly, Often his ability to tell a story is better than the story itself, if that makes sense. And yes, in fact it does. Like, I enjoy what I'm reading as I read it quite a bit. Lots of good character beats and fun Superman moments, but then the actual stories he, uh, he told left me a bit cold. And his biggest contribution to Superman's lore, the antagonist named Hell, is gonna go down in history as one of the biggest disappointing mysteries ever for me. Lobdell's tenure on the book was relatively lengthy, and one of the last things he did was help set up, uh, was help set up the Superman-doomed crossover storyline, but after he left the book, that story no longer involved the Superman title. Since then, Jeff Johns and John Romita have been working on it, and they've been doing good stuff, but their first arc is still in progress, so it remains to be seen how it all goes. So, to sum up my Superman recommends, 
Greg Pak's Action Comics and the Superman Wonder Woman book are definitely on there. And when those titles hit the Superman Doomed story, the Lovedell issue or two of Superman that directly pertains will be necessary. Secondary recommendations are John's Romita Superman and Batman Superman with Lovedell Superman run and the ones preceding him finishing out the list in backward order. Morrison's Action Comics is most definitely recommended as well, but it's kind of its own thing because uh, his mode of storytelling is so different. If you don't like Morrison, don't do it. If you do, it's worth checking out. Okay, I'm done. Thanks for so many great episodes of your show, and thanks for having me on. I hope to show up again soon. Your friend, John M. Wilson of the Avengers Inspiration Podcast. Uh, and John, thank you, actually, for taking the time to write in, because, look, obviously you knew more, and God knows you know more about the New 52 than I do. I read enough of it to decide, you know what? This is just not for me. You know, it's just not for me. So the fact is, if somebody else in, enjoyed it, or they got into it and they were just, <clears throat> they got in on the ground floor of it and they were just loving it. You know, guys, good for you. You know, I'm I'm happy that you got comics that you were able to enjoy. And if anything, it, it's not that I don't like you. If anything, I kind of envy you. I would have loved to have loved those comics when they were coming out. But, you know, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I've got, I don't know. Maybe it's just that I'm getting old and crotchety. You know, and I want things the way that I want them, and anything that's not that way, well, fuck that, you know? But, I don't know, it's just, what I want from these comics, and I guess what they seem willing to give me, they're just not the same thing, you know? And maybe that's, maybe that's just the nicest way that I can put it, so, I don't know. Anyway, now, to, to circle back to something that I kind of teased at the beginning of all of this, John wrapped up his, his email here saying, and thanks for having me on. I hope to show up again soon. And guys, that is very much the plan. Now, I said a while ago that, you know, for the longest time, the, the challenge that John and I had was uh, primarily to do with scheduling. And my new schedule, it hasn't officially started yet, but if things play out the way I suspect they will, then you guys need to batten down the hatches and get ready because John is going to be on this show a lot more than he has been in the past. And the way that I look at it, you know, that is definitely a positive because I like John. I like the cut of his jib. I like the way he podcasts. I like his voice. I like his thoughts. I like the way that he sees things. I like his perspective. I like how, you know, there are a lot of similarities between me and John Wilson on some things but then there are other things where you know he and I kind of part ways you know and you know I think it makes for good discussion I think it makes for better podcasting than I'm able to do individually and that's that's just how things are so I think John's uh, just a really cool guy and you can look forward to to hearing a lot more from him on my show in the future now that brings me to the next thing, the future. It's going to be a long while before you guys actually hear those episodes, the, the ones that I hope feature a lot of John Wilson. 
And the reason for that is because I've recorded a lot of stuff that's going to take me to not all, I don't think all the way, or at least not necessarily. Actually, you know what? Now that I'm looking at my schedule here, this may actually take me all the way into the end of the year and maybe even into next year. But the idea is that John is going to be on this show. It's going to take some time just to work through the episodes that I've already got in the can, just because there are so fucking many of them. It's going to take some time for me to work my way through the episodes that I've already got in the can. But then once I do, the floodgates are going to open and there's going to be, in fact, not even just John. I mean, a lot of John, don't get me wrong. But I'm going to have a lot more um, uh, guests on the show, too, just because I'm going to have the ability to finally do that. You know, so anyway, just something to look forward to, guys. I'm excited about it. And I want you guys to be excited about it, too, because I think some really good stuff is coming on the horizon from Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. So anyway, so that's that stuff. So, And as I look at the clock here, I've actually been uh, running my mouth for quite a while now. So I think I'm going to put a pin in, uh, in uh, the feedback, at least for right now. I'll get to more feedback in the future. And I'm not really sure when. I mean, I do want it to be soon. But at the very least, you know, I think I've been making good on my commitment to get more into, uh, into feedback in in my show lately and so hopefully that's going to give all of you a little bit more something something to look forward to you know so keep the feedback coming keep the emails coming uh keep the itunes reviews coming i'm actually too lazy to check itunes at the moment to see if anything new's been posted probably has and i'm just i don't know i'm just like i say just kind of lazy here i guess but anyway keep like i said keep the emails coming keep the itunes reviews coming keep the feedback coming you know, uh, feel free to check out the Trinus Magnus Punches Reality Facebook group because that's been a lot of fun lately. So anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, what I'm going to be talking about is some uh, some Spider-Man comics, a couple of issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, but that's going to be next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. <laughs> One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.